0: I intend today to give a fragmented talk, a kind of patchwork of different tales about extreme and extremities. I come from a European region, the Balkans, very much identified in the stereotype of uh, in the imagination of Europe with fragmentation. And perhaps, I say perhaps, this is one of the reasons why this fragmentation is reflected in my writings where I try to combine, sometimes successfully, sometimes not successfully, different narrative styles, fictional narratives with real testimonies, merging sometimes the lines between imagination and reality, autobiography and fiction. One of the questions when you become a writer, one of the questions that you are asked usually is, uh, which are your literary obsessions? And Personally, I have plenty of obsessions, literary and not. But I like to name my main literary obsessions, and I name them the three B, which are Borders, Books, and the Balkans. Maybe if I decide to live in Boston the next (laughs) few years, Boston will will be added to my list of literary B obsessions as well. When you are a writer today also, one of the questions you come across, especially from young people, is, has any of your books become a movie? <laughs> Saying the truth, I, I would have liked very much my books to become a movie, but I feel lucky enough that they have uh, become theatrical plays, though, in the past years. And this year, all by accident, three theatrical performances uh, based on my books have been staged Uh, simultaneously almost in Denmark, Greek, and Austria. So um, the borders are one of the main issues of my my books. And from the beginning of 20th century till now, borders and borderlines have been crucial for Europe's self-narration. Variably as a continent of colonial powers, Nationalist homogeneity, uninterrupted neutral massacre of European nations in two world wars, Holocaust, totalitarian utopias, secessionist egoism, visions of borderless unity and multicultural coexistence in a globalized world. I will read an excerpt from my book which relates to a very special type of borders, which we have known in the 20th century in Albania, in, in Europe are the totalitarian borders of Albania. Maybe those who know what happens in North Korea, or even in Iran today, will understand it, what I mean when I'll read my excerpt. One of the main concerns of the totalitarian regimes is the total control of the information, so the people cannot catch any signal and images from the world beyond the totalitarian borders. Those aerials are forever connected in my mind with two more people who made a lasting impression on me during my childhood, Uncle Yanni and Comrade Mede. I had known Uncle Yani almost all of my life because we lived in the same block. His flat was upstairs from us on the fourth floor. He was quite well known around town, mainly because he was waging an undeclared war on all enemies of the state and the revolution, the enemy without certainly, but especially the enemy within. From the conversations of the grown up at home and at friend's home, I learned that Uncle Yanni had an enormous logbook, which he kept hidden somewhere in his flat detailing the works and days of all suspect residents of our town. Who betide anyone whose name appeared on the list? It meant certain ruin for them and their relatives. Rumors about Uncle Gianni's list grew until it acquired mythical status within the community. Some said that it was just a simple notebook. Others maintained it was a huge tomb containing information relating not only to suspect persons in this town, but in the neighboring one, too. Uncle Yanni was so committed to hunting down the enemy within that it was said that even his daughter-in-law's name appeared on the list. They all lived under the same roof. One night, he overheard her murmuring, in her sleep. I don't give a shit about the party conference. Uncle Yanni was not the only one targeting the enemy within. There were others in town doing the very same thing. We knew about some of them, but not all. Comrade Mede, for example, we did not know about. We only found out about him much later, under the most tragic circumstances. Comrade Medes particular skill and passion was tracking down the enemy within through the precise study of the lie of their television aerials. He left no rough tube in the town, uninspected at least three or four times, operating under cover of night to make sure the direction of all aerials conformed to party regulations. In fact, he had compiled a long list of names next to which was recorded in the direction of the lie of their aerials. If Kamrat Mede discovered an aberration anywhere, the authorities were, were alerted instantly and the guilty party could find himself digging trenches for years on end. Comrade Mede's legendary list was discovered late one night on the roof of our block. Unfortunately, The owner of the list was five floors away from it, lying on the ground in the entrance to the building, having executed the most spectacular fall from the roof all the way down to the ground below, which was still damp from the recent rain. Karnat Mede's fall was accompanied by a terrible scream, which sent a jolt through everyone in our building, waking everyone in the surrounding blocks as well. He died on impact, a tragic, premature death, but a hero's death. He was killed in the line of duty, fighting for socialism and in the class struggle. What caused his fall, however, was never established, and speculation concerning the mysterious circumstances surrounding his demise continued to fuel the imagination of the people of our town. There are some verses how we, we, he was killed and how he died, and there are uh, a lot of black humor in these versions. But I want to pass now very fast, because time goes on very fast, describing shortly my current project, which is to investigate the public and private life of two important protagonists in the history of modern Albania, the dictator Enver Hoxha and uh, Musine Kalari. One is a communist dictator and the other is Albanian's first human writer who was imprisoned and exiled by the dictator's regime. Both Enver Hoxha and Mussineko Kallari belong, belong to the same generation, which in Albania is known as the generation of the 30s. They were both raised in the same Albanian town in South Albania, Gjirokaster, and were close relatives. For the purpose of my investigation, I had to meet with victims and perpetrators of that time in Albania. The profile, the psychological trauma, the silences above all the shame felt by the victims toward their personal and painful stories were not unfamiliar to me. I had personally known some of them, former political prisoners and sufferers in labor camps, even before the collapse of the communist regime. All by coincidence, my hometown, Lushnya and the villages around it were one of the main centers where the regime usually sent under the label of deportation its political opponents. I have never fully understood why my city was chosen and by who as the fittest for deporting the regime's political rivals. Perhaps the city was chosen on purely geographical criteria. In a country full of mountains, it was one of the rarest non-mountainous places in Albania. With a huge and fertile field surrounding, perhaps the surveillance of the so-called enemies was easier here. Or maybe because many of the deported could be forced to work in the fields 10 or 12 hours a day in the bitter cold of winter and in the lethal sun of the summer. Perhaps my hometown in central Albania was chosen because it is relatively far away from the borders, turning any attempt to escape by crossing the hermetically sealed borders into an impossible enterprise. The result was, though, that with so many victims of the regime, narratives about political prisons and labor camps circulating in the city rather more frequently and easier than in others. Moreover, one of the most interesting things had to do with the fact that more and more often, the victims of the regime were some of its former and most prominent supporters, which reminds me of Hannah Arendt's essay on violence when she writes that the decisive difference between totalitarian domination based on terror and tyrannies and dictatorships established by violence, is that only the former turns not only against its enemies but against its friends and supporters as well, being afraid of all power, even the power of its friends. The climax of terror is reached when the police state begins to devour its own children, when yesterday's executioners become today's victims. Maybe because I was not fully aware of the dangers occurring at that time because I was an adolescent adolescent, I had become close friends with some of the class enemies in my city, natives or foreigners as we categorized them, and I was able to hear first-hand testimonies from a world which I discovered was much more unknown to me than I had imagined. One of the first full testimonies and dramatic narratives on prisons and labor camps I heard was when I was 19, the time I met in my hometown one of the most talented modern Albanian poets, Visarjiti. He had suffered for 10 years in the horrible prison of Spac, constructed in 1968 in the middle of nowhere in the mountains of North Albania, not very far from the town of Mirdit, where Musineko Kalari was also deported to by the regime when she was released from, from prison in 1961. The Spatch prison and labor camp was the destination of the people whom the regime considered its most dangerous enemies. Visar was a teacher at elementary school in a city in northern Albania when he was arrested. The accusations against him were that of writing subsurge, subsurge, subversive, excuse me, and hermetic poetry. Once arrested, his personal it's not easy to articulate the paranoia of the regime. Once arrested, his personal diary was confiscated, and some of the excerpts extracted from it were used as part of the accusations in order to label him as an enemy of the popular regime. The following is an excerpt from his diary, which was used as part of the accusation. The mouth of Eve is now rotten, but her kisses are still alive. Adam and Eve ate only an apple, and this was enough to chase them from paradise. I am eating hundreds of apples here, but I cannot get out of this paradise of boredom. How had he dared to call the socialist paradise a paradise of boredom? In some of the books that Visarjiti wrote after the collapse of the regime, he writes about his experiences in detail, from the prison and the labor camps. Some of these stories remind me of the Kalima tales, by Shalamov, as well as other stories and testimonies from the Russian Gulags, or the first few, the few first-hand testimonies which come out today from North Korea. My colleagues and fellows will agree, I suppose, that writing is usually like a journey into the unknown. It changes and shifts all the time. My three novels are based on field research and the collection of oral testimonies. However, this is the first book based on archival research. I should say that my initial aim was not to write a novel on the topic I am discussing, neither to end up spending a long time researching in the Albanian State Archive. As I state in my introduction, I believe that books constitute one of my literary obsessions. That's why in my second book, My Name is is Europe, the central character tells a story about books and private libraries under totalitarianism. He grows up in a house with a tiny library most of which he used to hate. His, pa- his fearful parents, persecuted by the regime in the past, made the huge efforts to create a sort of window library, a kind of facade which would show their obedience to the regime, hoping to prevent any further ordeals. As one knows, the library is usually the first thing a visitor notices when entering the house. A central, the central character goes on to describe the shelves of this window library. They were full of books written mostly by party leaders and leading minds of Marxism-Leninism. One day, two books of Mao Zedong were added to the shelf, but they disappeared relatively early, as soon as Ember Hoxha called Mao a traitor to real socialism. And the most interesting books in the library were those of foreign literature, like Don Quixote, the only one that he really adored. Close to his adolescence, the central character makes an impressive discovery concerning the existence of other books in his house. Apart from the window library, his parents also used to keep banned books. They kept them secretly, hidden in their bedroom, enclosed carefully in two small black suitcases. The banned books never crossed the borders of their bedroom and were never found scattered carelessly throughout the house on the sofa or the table like the other normal books. They were like terrible secrets, and their existence was exclusively linked with darkness. I should say, tells the hero, that during the period of oppression and systematic paranoia, we had a lot of free time to read books, but we couldn't have the books we really wanted to read. Today, I can read whatever I like, but I have no time anymore. That's why there are moments when I feel nostalgic about that terrible period, when reading of the banned books was akin to a ritual and my relationship with books was similar to forbidden law. In the end of 2009, I had already given to my Greek publisher the book with the description of the above scene. It was then that I found myself again in Albania doing some research on the lifestyle of the party leaders during the communist regime. My initial aim was to write an article for my newspaper's columns. I was surprised, though, to discover, among other things, that books and private libraries played an important role in Hodges Court. I was astonished by the fact that some of these people who systematically destroyed libraries and book collections were also great readers and book collectors themselves. They even used to compete with each other, comparing the size of their private libraries. Enver Hoxha himself possessed an astonishing private library with more than 20,000 titles, mainly in French, as he had studied in France in the 1930s. Today, the private library of Enver Hoxha doesn't exist. Many of the books of the old tyrant were stolen by those who came to power after his death and after the collapse of the communist regime. Some of the book thieves were former exponents of the old regime who became overnight warriors of a jungle capitalism. And from this perspective, they were starting their post-communist career by stealing the books of their old master. In few words, the tyrant's library was dismantled into thousands of pieces and totally disappeared. It was back then that my interest in the private library of the tyrant grew. I only found a few of his actual books, but I was lucky enough to to find in the Albanian State Archive all the titles of the books in his private library. For around four years now, I have been wandering literally with 1,000 photocopies pages which contain the titles of the books of Enver Hoxha private library. After dismissing my initial idea to write a newspaper article about it, I decided to write a short essay on this library, on the reading habit, habits of the tyrant and his relationship with books. But encouraged by my curiosity, or perhaps because I got emotionally involved with all this, I decided to further my research. Actually, I wanted to learn more about the relationship of the tyrant to books, about how we used to order them, if he really read them, if he had the habit of speaking to others about books, if he told stories, which were his most beloved literary genres and books, if his acts and thoughts were influenced by his reading. It was then that I began to come into contact with a part of that world which until then I had feared, hated profoundly, and rejected, the world of the perpetrators. Some of these people were close relatives of the tyrants, others, were his closest collaborators or his obedient attendants. Suddenly, I went from an opponent of that regime to finding myself in the role of the researcher of the regime. Judging them was not enough. I also had to try to listen to them, to read their words and gestures, and find the meaning behind them, to try to understand and look inside their world. It was, let's say, the price I had to pay if I wanted to satisfy my curiosity and my ambitions as a writer. I can speak for hours about the meeting with some of these real characters, who in the past belonged to the powerful and pitiless camp of the persecutors, executioners, and perpetrators. I will limit myself to only some remarks. I heard them say that finally they had the chance to speak with someone, me that is, about sensible and human matters, about books, music, and friendship. They struggled really hard to convince me of their human side. They cared very much to show me that they were good fathers, normal people who loved their children, their spouses, their nieces and nephews, that they loved reading and were passionate about music. Some of them stressed the fact that they had even helped persecuted people in the past, saving them from imprisonment or deportation. Some of them had remained still fond of their former master, justifying his deeds by the fact that Albania had been a country rejected and despised by the West, the country was destroyed by the Second World War and suffered from a dramatic backwardness, and they, the communists, had to rebuild everything from scratch. There were also those who interpreted the horrible deeds of the tyrant by pretending that he was misinformed about the real situation in Albania by his wife. When our conversation came to their responsibilities during the totalitarian period, then they lost all their good spirit. Even when they showed regret for the crimes of the regime, they systematically avoided apologizing. Almost all of them declared ignorance or lack of information about what had happened or justified everything by saying that they were obeying orders or evoked the general spirit of that time, which prevailed not only in Albania but all over the world. In such a context, they said, such terrible things seem normal. The spirit of the time was for them something like a physical phenomenon upon and beyond human will. Sometimes, as we were talking, I imagined them, with terror, I should say, in their previous roles. Powerful labor camp guards, sons and daughters of powerful dictators, investigators and prosecutors, individuals who gave orders which decided the lives and deaths of hundreds or thousands of people. Without the mantle of power, though, without the protection of the paranoid system, which they had forged, preserved, or blindly obeyed, They felt powerless. They never repented, however. What I understood was that their last wish was to find a place in history like normal human beings. They were unable, though, to carry any sense of guilt. Instead, some of them hinted that they felt like victims of that European bloody 20th century where someone had to choose between becoming a Nazi or a communist. I am aware that perhaps I'm not saying something terribly original here describing the behavior of son of the perpetrators. The concept of the banality of evil coined by Hannah Arendt has greatly helped our understanding of the evil. Based on this concept as well, the French Bulgarian philosopher Zvetan Todorov in his book, Facing the Extreme, where he analyzes the Nazi concentration camps and the Stalinist gulags, describes the behavior of the perpetrators in totalitarian regime as social schizophrenia. In a totalitarian system, writes Sodorov, social schizophrenia, the division of life life into impermeable compartments, is a defense mechanism for anyone with some moral principles left to preserve. I may act passively and inignably in this or that fragment of my life, but in others... The ones I deem essential, I remain a respectable person. Without this division, I could not function normally. Like the fever that accompanies an illness, fragmentation makes evil possible, even easy. And it is for this reason that fragmentation is an ordinary vice. Perhaps Solzhenitsyn is right when he writes that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human art and through all human arts. What he meant is that we all can find our sins on the side of the evil. If there is a philosophical or political conclusion from my research, though, I would stress the fact that in order to understand the behavior of the perpetrators and the victims as well, we should analyze the hardcore ideological narrative and practice in which they are based and in which context they are defined. It's this very ideological narrative that many of the perpetrators refuse to reject by justifying their acts, by saying that their intention, in fact, were good, or by pretending to not understand or not know what is going on in reality. As Todorov says, we must try to grasp the whole situation, to articulate two propositions which only seem to contradict each other. First, that the crimes are inhuman, but the criminals are not. And second, that some ordinary people committed some extraordinary acts. That's why, once the totalitarian system is in place, the vast majority of the population, people like you and me, are at risk of becoming accomplices in its crimes. That is all it takes. I think I have to stop. I wanted to, to say that this, this is not my novel. The novel is another thing. And the novel begins in Paris, not in Albania. And afterwards, it goes through Italy, and it comes in Albania. And then maybe, uh, I don't know where else, it will, uh, it will drive me. Uh, and uh, um, also, I began writing a nonfiction and now I'm writing the fiction, and the things have changed a lot and are changing through writing of the piece. Um, let me, um, in the end, only show some slides so you can get an idea. And uh, uh, we have not, unfortunately, we have not many photos of uh, Mussineko Kalari. Uh, uh, this photo is from the files of the secret. Uh, 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 service because she was filed and the most of the information I, I got it from there. Uh, her photos also were confiscated and we don't know where they are, if they were burned or not. And after she was released from prison she never uh, she never got a photo of her. Uh. And she's in trial here in uh, 1946. Um, Um, One year before, two of her brothers had been executed. They were owners of a publishing house and one of the most known bookstores in Tirana, Venus. And Then she was uh, imprisoned uh, when she reclaimed uh, political pluralism in Albania. You see the veil around her heirs is that during the trial her father died also and so she's mourning. I should say that I got sick uh, reading the secret service file of Mussina Kokalari because I couldn't stand anymore the amount of paranoia. Uh, she got ill in 1921 from cancer, and she she, she was not allowed to to go and uh, to go to to the hospital in the capital of Albania, in Tirana, to to face his illness, and so she is staying in in her in her house the most of the time. And the Secret Service are very afraid that she is is plotting something against them. And uh, one of them is saying why she is not coming out. Uh, This guy here is Enver Hoxha. In 1936, in one of the rars, the only one public presentation of him in a patriotic, let's say, gathering in 1936, Uh, uh, Afterwards, in 1941, he became a protagonist of the Albanian history and of the communist uh, movement. I chose this photo because I I couldn't choose a better photo. You see here, anyone is here, because this photo is from 1980. So everyone, everyone has been eliminated from the photo, he's alone. And 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 that's also his his spiritual um, uh, investigating his life is also his spiritual uh, situation. He is totally alone. He has killed almost all his also all his close friends. This is a photo he he liked very much uh, being photographed in uh, um, the library is a huge library. Here is only one, one part of it. And you see in his back is his wife, who was uh, always by his side. And uh, here is, are some of the, with the writing of the dictator, some of the titles of the books that he ordered. Uh, he ordered them in France. He took them from the bulletin du livre critique francais. Every month from 1944 to 1985 that he died. We are talking about tens or or sometimes hundreds of books uh, in a month. And uh, here is very is here those who know um, Albanian know that he was very concerned about the books. When he ordered books and they they were late. Uh, He was very concerned and he told his secretary, where are the books? And here he said, I have ordered two books, and 20 days have passed, and they have not come yet, which means that he really was concerned that he really read books. And here his uh, uh, secretary says to the Albanian ambassador in France. Be concerned with the books. Send the books because you know that he is very much concerned. And you know, <laughs> point, point, point. Here is uh, a part of the library in 1964. He's reading. Uh, he's reading. Let's say inclinations change over time, and it's very, uh, very interesting to follow them. For example. Uh, who knows, friends know, La Lesson de Flaubert. You, you, you can see some of the books that interested him uh, Victor Hugo, L'Allemagne, Victor Hugo, and the Germany, Mallarmé, Le Symbolisme. Uh, he, he was fond of the symbolic poet, poets and, the, um, and um, all the art from, from Arthur Rambeau to, to, to Mallarmé, to Baudelaire. Uh, Racine, the man, and he has also le, le, Les impuissances Sexuelle et leur traitement. I, I don't know why he, <laughs> he, he ordered this. Uh, here is a, a very rare piece uh, of uh, the private, private diary of Ferber Hoja. His wife uh, ordered him to write his memories because also she understood that this guy was, had become maybe a monster. And they wanted a little bit to mild his image, to give a more human image, that he had an infant. He had a a life of his own. But here, underlined with pain is, is me. But here, his wife, this is after his death, is censoring him. She's erasing his. Uh, his memoirs she 's arranging his memoirs, and here a psychoanalyst will find it very interesting because uh, he 's with his uncle and his uncle says to him, "When you grew up, kill all these rich people i don 't know even if he was from a rich family uh, and his mother is afraid from the words of his uh, his uncle that says don 't speak like so because you will." Because then when he'll grow up, he'll become a killer. And his wife has erased the phrase. This is a little bit of conscience of the guiltiness. This is all. Thank you. Sorry for